fourth episode of Measure Direction. I am Jason Rose, a content strategist here at Digital Surgeons. I'm joined as always by Tom Miller, the leader of our analytics practice. What's up, Tom? What's up? Uh, looking forward to, as always, getting into the questions that you guys have submitted through bit.ly slash Measure Direction or on Twitter using the hashtag Measure Direction. Uh, awesome. Once again, that's bit.ly slash Measure Direction or the hashtag Measure Direction where you guys can submit the questions that you know we can put to Tom and see what see what I can work on. Let's well, get and that. you too. <laughs> yep. I always cut myself short. <laughs> All right. Cool. So first question. Uh, when you're testing something like a landing page but only have a small amount of traffic, how do you determine when the test is finished? And this question was an anonymous one from someone here at uh, Digital Surgeons. Okay. That's, that's a pretty good question. I mean, testing and optimization is something that um, we do a lot here at DS uh, as part of our part of my analytics practice. Um, so when you're talking about, you know, a landing page or really any page that you're testing, certainly the volume of traffic coming to that page is a consideration. And the reason that is the case is because when you talk about making a change to a page and evaluating it via an experiment, which is, you know, sort of how testing tools are set up, you, you need a certain divergence in the effect of, of what you're trying to test from the control in order to uh, demonstrate significance, right? And so, you know, the way a testing tool works is it takes your incoming traffic and it separates the traffic into a control and other experimental groups, right? And that, that sort of keeps everything controlled when it comes to other effects of things that might be going on with those users, right? And things that could be like day of the week effects or something like that. Everybody is, has an equal chance of seeing either being, a, if they're part of the experiment, uh, you know, of getting into an experimental condition. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're not, there's no bias that's created, what's called a selection bias, in that certain people based on certain characteristics or behaviors are being put into an experiment in experimental condition, whereas others are not. So you're doing an A-B test, and it really boils down to the likelihood of someone seeing A. So whether it's a button on a website or the B button, whatever it is, the variable, they have an equally like same chance of seeing one or the other. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be equally as likely, right? So you could say, I only want to put 10% of my traffic into an experiment, and I only want to show 10% of my traffic 10% of the experimentally, the experimental segment, the control, right? So I, I don't want it to make it seem like it needs to be perfectly balanced, but you do need to be randomly selecting people into those groups, okay. right? So it, but it's sort of a tangent to the question. The, the question is, is okay, so you're, you're trying to test something that gets a very low volume of traffic. So what, the way that you calculate out how much traffic it's going to need is you back out of what your expected or what your minimal uh, effect is that you're willing to accept for that experiment, right? And when you're talking about a low-volume traffic page or, or condition, that effect is going to need to be larger because the way that significance works is that it is easier to demonstrate significance on a larger effect than it is 
on a smaller one, right? So a very small effect needs a high volume of people within that experimental condition in order to prove it to actually be the effect of the experimental condition and not just due to random chance, right? Okay. A larger effect, that, that volume is much less. So I would say with a small, you know, a small, a, a lightly trafficked page or experience or whatever you want to call it, you either need to be shooting for big effects or you need to be thinking about some way of understanding people's interaction with that page that go beyond an experiment, right? An experimental methodology. And there, there are other ways that you can, you can do that, right? You could look at, um, you could create, uh, you know, you could focus group it, you can usability test it, you can do that in-house, you can actually outsource usability testing. So, you know, maybe what you're trying to do is get someone to do something, but the, you know, your conversion event, but the conversion event, you know, there might be some really obvious usability things that could be done to the page that might yield a great you know, a great deal more conversions than sort of poking around with experimental tests. And it might be something that you could achieve much quicker and see an effect and do a, you know, sort of a post hoc analysis on uh, as opposed to doing a, an experiment. What do you define as a big enough effect that it won't necessarily matter that there's lower volume? Does that make sense? Well, it really depends on the volume. So, you know, one thing that I have noticed is this is sort of a difficult nut to crack, right? Because there is sort of this um, experimental volume condition for a lot of sort of lightly trafficked sites or, or lightly trafficked interfaces is, is onerous for testers sometimes. And I've sort of noticed this with, with sort of the, the community <laughs> has sort of crept down, you know, the, the academic standard is usually like 95%. So, you know, whenever you hear about a p-value, I mean, I used to run tests for, um, you know, interface tests in college, and our p-values were always uh, 95%, which means that there is a 5% likelihood that the effects that you are seeing are due to randomness and not due to the actual experimental effects, right? Yeah. I've seen that creep crept down and, you know, rightly or wrongly to 90 to 80, um, you know, by people that are practicing tests, uh, you know, within companies. Now, 80, you know, that's a one in five chance of being incorrect, basically, right? Of, of doing a test and, and seeing a success, but that success not being due to the experimental condition and being due to uh, randomness, being due to sampling in people that were more likely to convert into the into the wrong sample set disproportionately, right? Um, yeah, when you think about that, if it's like a landing page on an e-commerce site, one in five, if you're optimizing towards something that could potentially be 20% wrong, that's a lot of lost revenue. Right, right. And so, you know, I like to use the coin flip analogy when I, when I talk about this. It's like, you know, it's very unlikely that if you flip a coin a thousand times, it could, it's going to come up heads every single time, but it's possible, right? And, and you can express that probability. And it's sort of the same concept, although, you know, mathier, when it comes to the idea of 
significant, right? And, you know, 80% to me, it's like, sure, and, and here's some good reasons to have a relatively low threshold for significance. The, one of the most difficult things about testing is pacing, right? So if you're working in an organization, the way that you want to be testing is you don't do one-offs, right? You do a testing program, and that testing program is looking at key interfaces over a long period of time, right? You're playing the long game with testing. You're not playing the short game. And setting your threshold at 80 means that it gives you a great deal more ability to iterate because you're not stuck with a bunch of iterations in a row that don't do anything, right? Um, so by keeping your standards lower, you're actually able to drive the ball down the field further or more often, right? That makes sense. Even though you might not necessarily be doing things that are actually doing what you think they're doing, right? In you're at least moving towards the end goal. Well, you're 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 continuing to iterate on a process that within a lot of corporate environments is a difficult one to iterate on, right? It really takes a lot of commitment for a marketing team to invest in testing. And so keeping your threshold low means that you're able to say, okay, we've had some success. And over time the successes are gonna bear out. But what you're willing to do is you're willing to sacrifice some error, and it's going to be a minor minor amount of error, but you're willing to sacrifice some error over time that is, you know, roughly three times, four times what it would be if you were using, you know, what, what would be considered like an academic level of significance. Cool. So I think it's good. I mean, you know, I think that, that pretty much answers the question. It's, you know, I mean, I guess the short answer is, it's difficult. Like go for go for huge changes, right? Yeah. That's that's the the practical. Yeah, it's the bottom line takeaway. Yeah. All right. So the second question comes to us anonymously through the Bitly form, and the second question is: How do you explain the differences between digital media clicks and clickstream tool sessions, and why are they sometimes so different? All right. So this is a super common question, um, and this comes up sort of client side a lot, right? Um, why is it that when you're investing in digital media and your digital media venues are reporting to you a certain number of clicks and you're paying in a lot of cases for those clicks, right? And why is there a discrepancy between that metric, the click metric, and then your clickstream analytics tool, say Google Analytics or Adobe Analytics or whatever you're using, the number of visits or sessions that you're receiving uh, that the tool is reporting that you're receiving, right? Yeah. So, you know, I'll turn the question to you. Why do you why do you think this could happen? I mean, just any reason. I mean, maybe something to do with how the tags are firing, that maybe the way they're put in the browser interacts differently based on the yeah. other tool that's measuring it. I mean, definitely that, right? So, um, you know, your, your Clickstream Analytics tool is client-dependent, right? So that means that your browser is actually executing that tag. The click tracking is going to be venue dependent. So as soon as you click that link, um, the, you know, the venues tracking is going to kick in. So the way that usually works is you're clicking an internal link on the venue, which is then redirecting to your landing page, right? The link that you click is what is tracking that actual click as a metric, right? I just air quoted. 
for everyone at home. <laughs> We're great at radio. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Um, All right, so, so what are some other reasons that could happen? Sure. I mean, you know, the ad blocking is a big thing, right? So you could, and obviously if you have an ad blocker on, it'd be strange to see an ad. <laughs> but you, you could be in a situation where you're opting out of, say, a Clickstream Analytics tool, but not opting out to... And not opting out from whatever the ad is that you're clicking on, right? And so you click, your visit goes silent within your Clickstream Analytics tool, but you're still you're still being tracked as a clicker through the ad venue. Um, you know, another way that that could happen is the Clickstream Analytics tools do post processing, right? So your browser makes a request to Google Analytics, and then Google Analytics actually evaluates that request. Uh, and, you know, we, we don't just have to be talking about Google Analytics, but, you know, that request gets evaluated, it gets geotagged to your IP address, and there is some post-processing that goes on, and some of that post-processing could involve your actual initial page view or your actual session being excluded for some reason. You know, maybe the, maybe the tool thinks that you're a bot or a spider, maybe the tool... I mean, that's really the reason, but, but that could potentially happen, right? You get filtered out, right? Maybe your profile uh, that you're using, you know, your view in Google Analytics, for instance, is filtering you out based on your location or your IP address or some other reason, right? Obviously, that's a tool configuration error that you're making in evaluating your ad venue, but that could certainly be the case. Why else? Uh, you know... There are also a lot of instances where people are clicking, landing, and escaping, or clicking, landing, and leaving, and never, the, the page isn't loading, right? So if your page doesn't load on your landing page, JavaScript never fires, well, you've certainly clicked, but if there's an error or if there's a long period of time between you know, the click and the page load, well, you could lose people. Right? You could lose people because there's an error and JavaScript never fires because JavaScript's dependent. Uh, most clickstream tools are dependent on JavaScript. Or it just simply takes too long to load. Or, or the, the, ad, the tracking tag takes too long to load. And somebody leaves the site, leaves your landing page before that tag get a chance to, gets a chance to fire. Um, now, you know, most tracking tags are fired asynchronously these days. So, you know, typically when you land, and if you're using a tag manager, right, tag manager fires, then it asynchronously, asynchronously and very quickly makes a request to whatever your clickstream tool is, and that's sort of happening as a separate thread. But if you're not using asynchronous tags, you're using uh, sort of classic tags, uh, you know, the page needs to load before your tag can fire, right? So, so you could reach a situation where other JavaScript or, you know, just page load issues are really slowing things down. And, you know, you could have tags creating race conditions with each other where, you know, tags are waiting for each other to fire, things like that. And, you know, you, you could just really have a tagging problem if it's something that's persistent. So if I'm a brand and I'm seeing this discrepancy between clicks and what my clickstream tool is reporting to me. Sure. What... I'm not, I don't know how to phrase this, but what do you do what about do you put it? the weight towards? Do you believe one to be more accurate than the other? I mean, what kind of is the, the I, next line of thought once you realize that there's reasons why this exists, but what do you trust? Honestly, you need your, you need your 
you need to use the clicks as an as an evaluative metric on the media, but really the way that you need to value your media is from some type of conversion event, right? So cost per click, cost per session, you know, those are not those are not so good media metrics. What you really want is or are return on ad spend um, metrics, you know, related to either direct response or long-term value of your customers. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, some, of these venue, some of these venues are going to be more accurate than others or seem to be more accurate than others. But really what you need to do is you need to land on what is our definition of success and what is that conversion event and then evaluate the cost of your media based on that, right? And, and, and your return on your ad spend based on ultimately what it's doing for you and your business. And stressing about clicks, I mean, other, other ways that this could happen is, you know, you could just like rapidly click twice or you could go click, back, click. And yeah, I, I mean, there are a million ways that this could happen, so right? So just get, don't get too vain about what the numbers are slightly I, changing. I would Congress, say, like, don't, yeah. don't stress on clicks. Understand that you're buying sessions, right? Yeah. And, you know, if you're buying, and whatever your, you know, whatever your campaign objective is, stay focused on that. And stressing about these discrepancies, I mean, no, no tool's going to be 100% accurate, right? If you feel like there is a major problem with your Clickstream Analytics tool, maybe we can cover that in a future episode, uh, some techniques for auditing that. But, you know, understand that when you're talking about different platforms, in any case, right, your testing platform is probably always going to say you have a different number of users coming to your site than your Clickstream tool. You know, your voice of customer platform might have a different number of uniques that it's seeing. And it really has to do with defining who humans are that are viewing your site, right? All these tools might have different understandings of that. And, you know, what it is you're tracking. So at the end of the day, what you really need to do is you need to establish a tool of record when it comes to Clickstream, establishing metrics that are related to return on media, right? And not just these activities related to media. And you know, just understand that when you're talking about a server-based tracking mechanism on an ad venue versus your JavaScript-fired client-side dependent tracking mechanism as a click-through or as a clickstream tool, that they're never going to line up. Never. Never. <laughs> I'm going to say it again. Get that through their head. <laughs> never going to happen. Never going to happen. <laughs> so that's it. All right, cool. I have actually one more selfish question that I want to submit myself. Oh, so okay. So I was listening to a podcast um, last night on the drive home. Not a podcast. I was listening to a TED Talk. His thesis was he compared how Netflix picked House of Cards versus how Amazon picked Alpha House to be their their TV show that they put on around the same time. And he said that both decisions were involved with data. So for Netflix, they looked at all the shows that were popular, what everyone was watching on their platform, and decided that House of Cards was a show they should invest in. Mm -hmm. While Amazon relied solely on the data of, they put like eight shows out for free and tracked how people watch those shows and then crunched it through some kind of algorithm. I'm just not sure how exactly they processed it, but it came out and said that Alpha House was the show they made. And But the comparison he drew was, so House of Cards was extremely popular, Alpha House was not, 
And he said this was because Netflix used data to break out what the problem was. And then their brain to say, this is what makes sense for us to do, while Amazon relied too much on data to both frame the problem, but then also to solve it. So you know, it's it's a fascinating difference in that the the shows are sort of similar in a lot of ways. I mean, they're really different in most ways. But, it, you know, some aspect of this implies that, like, this DC sort of political, you know, uh, thing was going to take off, right? Like, both of these groups seemingly independently landed on, like, this idea of a congressman being a center of a TV show, and then vastly diverged from there, right? Yeah. Um, it, you know, it, it's, it's sort of a, a little bit of, um, a little bit of a pedantic statement, but it really goes to the difference between being data-driven and data-informed, right? It's sort of uh, one of those things that's fallen out of favor to say that we're a data-driven company because it implies that you are, uh, you know, almost like Skynet. In yeah, that you, the AI is just yeah. like going, you know what I mean? Whereas data-informed means that you are trying to arm yourself with as much information as possible and using your own, I don't even want to say gut feeling because that's sort of the opposite of being data-informed. But you're you're using the data to uh, execute on your business strategy, whatever that might be, right? Um, as opposed to letting the data dictate the strategy. Yeah, right? trusting the complex problem-solving that we have the ability to do with our brain instead of saying that right. I'm just going to use the... Yeah, and I mean, and you're talking about something that, that at the end of the day is a work of art and creativity, right? Yeah. So at the end of the day, um, you know, it's certainly subjective. You know, Alpha House could have gotten Kevin Spacey on it, and it might be the hit show. That's right, and Alpha House isn't a bad show, no, by, by any stretch. Yeah, yeah. But it just wasn't the huge hit that House of Cards was, is the distinguishing thing he made. But yeah, it's certainly by no means not a hit show. Right. So I mean, that, that's sort of where I see it. Right. It's like. This concept where you you can't let go, <laughs> you, you can't let go. Like you can't just because you you have a great handle on your data and what you think your customers are telling you, right? That's that's ultimately at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is you're trying to deliver positive outcomes for your customers, and you can't really let the data the data needs to enable that, but it also can't get in the way of. So that's where I Makes that. sense. Yeah. Cool. Well, this, the TED Talk that we were just talking about was from Sebastian Wernicke, and it's How to Use Data to Make a Hit TV Show. Awesome. Recommend it. I'm going to check it out. All right, cool. And then we can talk about it more next time, and you can maybe poke some more holes in it, and we can get a little deeper. All right, well, thanks for listening, guys. Right, As always, lot, submit questions to bit.ly slash measure direction. We look forward to answering them next time. Hey, what's your uh, Twitter handle? It's... At J.T. Rose. That's J-A-Y-T-R-O-S-E. Awesome. And I'm at T. Miller. T-M-L-L-R. We appreciate the follows, and we really appreciate the, uh, sub- the question submissions. Keep them coming in, and we will see you next time.